You're about to listen to a bonus episode from The Partial Historian. Before we begin, we'd just like to apologize for a little bit of uh, technical difficulty we had with recording the audio. You might notice some crackling at times, even in this recording, um, and we're in the process of replacing our equipment. We hope that doesn't impair your enjoyment of the episode overall. Welcome to a special edition of the Partial Historians. I am one Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. Welcome, everybody. So, we are branching out and doing something a little out of our comfort zone. We're trying to build on our film review collection. And so, this week, we are talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino's latest film. I believe it's the ninth film. Ooh. <laughs> He may not have many more in the can. I think he said he wanted to get to 10, I believe. Now, you may be wondering why this is not Roman history, (laughs) but I think it's important, um, and I'm sure long-standing listeners are well aware, that Dr. Rad is actually an expert on Rome on film, which means she's an expert on film. (laughs) (laughs) Enough of an expert, I think, to do a very short review on this film, which I found very interesting. Mm, what did you yeah like I'm, I'm really intrigued about your perspective on this well maybe we should give our listeners a bit of background uh, about what the film is actually all about so I think it's actually a pretty timely film to be talking about because it is set in 1969 which of course is 50 years 50 ago, years ago. We've oh, sorry, got the moon I should landing. say 1968 1968 okay yeah. going into 1968 mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. um so yeah it's about 50 years ago um, so and yeah, it is a time of lots of exciting things happening around the world. 1968, 1969. Um, so it does focus on a fictional main character, Rick Dalton, a Western star who's slightly beyond his prime, or, or so he, so he <laughs> so, feels, so he feels, <laughs> and perhaps so he is cast. Yes, <laughs> yeah. uh, and his stunt double, who's like his, like like a friend, valet a friend slash. <laughs> Stand in. It seems like uh, Cliff, the mm. the stunt double, is a bit, has been a bit down on his luck with the work as well. Yes. It seems like he's getting replaced faster than Rick. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's ended up being the case that Rick's done Cliff a bit of a favor and sort of hired him to drive him around in his car. And yeah, exactly. Actually, basically, his personal assistant slash stunt double. Yeah, slash maybe <laughs> something else. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get into my homoerotic theory later. <laughs> okay. Uh, so within this time, 1968, 1969, in Hollywood, what Tarantino plays up in the background of this is the Man- like the Manson family and the growth of Charles Manson's little following, uh, which will eventually, as we sort of journey into like you know proper 1969 story time, um, will lead us to August 1969, when the Matson murders infamously took place. Yeah, or, and every so often the film will give us what date it is. Yeah, it, it's mostly 1969 that it's focusing on. Um, and it starts off sort of the beginning of 1969 and then goes you know, towards the end of 1969. Yeah. Um, so that's really the historical background. So looking at Hollywood in this time and what was going on in the film industry. Um, and... and and what was going on with the Manson family is kind of in this ominous like, building in the background. 
a bit of a background context that becomes more and more pertinent as the film develops. Yeah, we well, see, I must admit, and this is going to be probably sound a little weird, but when I saw this film, I just saw a film poster and I thought, I want to see that movie. And so, and I went in with absolutely no knowledge of what it was about or anything. I just decided to go in and blank slate it. But within like the first few frames, I saw Cielo Drive and I was like, okay, this is a mess. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> yeah. Um, instantly realized what this was actually about. Okay. So yeah. you're familiar with the whole Manson situation. Yeah, so basically, nineteen, uh, it's sort of over nineteen sixty seven and nineteen sixty eight. Charles Manson, uh, who had a pretty rough life and was a pretty horrible person by this stage, um, he started to he got out of jail and he started to he moved to California and started to build up a, a following of sort of lost souls, mostly younger women who you know had been in abusive relationships before or had you know run away from home or were feeling you know detached from life somehow like a lot of people were I yeah think, people in, in search of a community perhaps exactly yeah people in search of community and and this is the whole thing about this is the whole thing i think that i find fascinating about this period um it seemed to be such a period of promise uh, you know in the 60s and this idea of like the hippie lifestyle and the counterculture and all that sort of thing it has a certain optimism and you know a lot of hope associated with it of doing something different um but the problem is that when you open your mind and you open your heart up to these sort of new cultish kind of figures or these people who, you know, like modern day Masari types like Charles Manson, you just don't ever know, I suppose. You just don't know whether you're getting a good Messiah or a bad Messiah. He's not the Messiah. (laughs) He's a very naughty boy. (laughs) Yeah, so um, since moving out to California, um, Charles Manson established this, this following and they became known later as the Manson family. And he was very much in control. I mean, he, through all his, um, he was, you know, in and out of jail from his early teens, basically. And um, through all his various experiences in life, uh, he just, he learned a lot about how to manipulate people. And so he was able to use, you know, all sorts of things like his background association with Christianity to um, looking at, you know, self-help books to dealing with pimps in jail. He learned a lot from all of these different sorts of areas about how it's best to manipulate people and get them under your spell. And by doing this, he managed to build up, you know, this following. And he also, of course, used things like LSD. He would actually administer, like, particular amounts of LSD to the people in the family, like, however much he thinks he thought they needed, you know. Wow, okay. Yeah, and then, right. and then, you know, when they were, like, on their trips, he would pontificate and, you know, he totally painted himself as like a modern day Jesus basically. And you can kind of see where he got that from when you look at him. He was short, but he does have the whole he has the boofy hair. Yeah, exactly. He's got the Jesus look going on. Um and he also used violence to control these women. You know, he would he would usually separate like the new a new woman from the rest of the family for a while and after a few days, if she wasn't ready to like, you know, perform sexual acts on command, then she was out. You know, so he, he had a phenomenal amount of control over his followers. I mean, he was they would send they were desperately poor because you know, they weren't really working or anything. He would send them out to forage for scraps of food and that sort of thing. And whatever the women brought back, the men would eat first and the women would eat the scraps of the scraps. So it was a very interesting dynamic that he had there. But the whole thing is that he had a whole he had a lot of control over his followers. 
Okay, so how does this weave into your understanding of this particular film? So, like, well, this is the thing. In in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the, the final cut that we see, there isn't a lot of Manson in there. He's just this presence lurking in the background. We more see the members of the family executing his orders. And this is, I think, the fascinating thing about Charles Manson and why people like, keep going back to this story. Charles Manson didn't actually take part in what's now known as like the Manson murders. He orchestrated the murders, uh, but he wasn't actually there. So this is the thing I find interesting about this particular film. It is about this crime, but you don't really see a lot of him. He's just referred to, and there's like one or two scenes, you know, that are left in the film with him in it. Yeah, um, yeah. But but in order to, for that to happen, the idea, I suppose, of him having like this control over his followers and dictating what they do and, you know, and that kind of thing. Mm, so yeah. there's like this kind of like eerie sense that's that's overhanging the whole sort of enterprise of this narrative. Yeah, and I think the thing that's, that uh, that intrigued me most about this film and why I wanted to talk about it as a form of history, and I'm sorry, this is a spoiler. <laughs> I finally remembered to say it before I actually spoiled <laughs> something, um, is that the whole film, at least for someone like myself who'd gone in with, you know, no reviews or anything in my head, I know it's building to the Manson murders. You know, I know it's building to August 1969 when uh, Sharon Tate and all her house gets, get murdered and then the La Bianca murders happen. Like, I know that's what it's building towards. And then all of a sudden, the final part of the film, it completely blows that up. After presenting what seems to be a fairly historically accurate portrayal of Hollywood in 1969 or like the Hollywood industry, um, it then blows up history and goes through this counterfactual history where Sharon Tate and her house guests aren't murdered. In fact, instead, it's Manson's followers who are murdered. Um, and, and therefore, this whole train, you know, this whole chain effect of what happens after the Manson murders never happens. Um, so I find that really interesting because, of course, Tarantino's done this before. Yeah, he has. He's got, <laughs> he's got form for this. Um, I believe Inglorious Bastards does something similar in terms of counteracting the history with a completely different narrative and be like, what about this? And you're like, ah, this is going to be difficult to explain to my history students. <laughs> exactly. So I find this film really interesting because in my eyes, it's just a form of counterfactual history. So I guess I wanted to talk to you about what we think about counterfactual history and um, and its use in this particular way. I mean, particularly in a film where lots of people are going to see this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I should start with um, some of my perspectives on the film. Sure. So I went in knowing very little about Charles Manson. Yeah. And in fact, I still know very little about Charles Manson. (laughs) He's not a figure who's ever been on my radar. Yeah. I've never read anything about him. I opened up the Wikipedia page as I was doing research to talk about this film for this podcast after having seen the film. Yes. And closed it again because his eyes were too creepy. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he's been doing a lot of drugs and I don't think I can read about this. (laughs) guy right now um so i went in knowing next to nothing about that historical element of context Mm. i was aware that murders happened yeah um i was aware that sharon tate had been murdered yeah um but that was about the extent of my knowledge so when i got into this film i think i was missing the crucial element that tarantino is perhaps assuming that his audience possesses yeah which is a prior understanding of context yes and i went in blissfully ignorant (laughs) I was like a first-year student who had never studied Roman history before. <laughs> I turned up to my first lecture, and they started talking in Latin. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I like the toga. Um, so for me, this film was really disappointing. Okay. Yeah, because it never became historical. 
for right. me. And it trod all over a film that I adore, which is The Great Escape. So I can never forgive him. <laughs> and I was like, there is no way you can just superimpose Leonardo DiCaprio over Steve McQueen in that film and pretend that it's okay. I appreciate the level of CGI that we've reached. Yes, But that definitely. is that is one of my all-time favorite films. <laughs> I was not a happy camper no, at that There moment. you go. See, I've learned something new. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had issues because I, I didn't see any of the, the subtle hints that might have been leading me to, like, like I didn't recognize the rogue um, yes, that yeah. you saw, um, for instance. And I was waiting for it to to pay off in terms of the narrative build. And I was like, well, we all know how this ends. Yes. She has to get murdered. Yes. And then it didn't. And I was like, you know what? There is no narrative payoff for this film whatsoever. <laughs> um, so I had some issues with what seemed to me to be pretty clearly poor editing. Mm. Um, there was a lot of driving around for no good reason. Um, and I was like, you know, like it's like the, for you me, mean, a, you mean so Brad Pitt couldn't like check out the Manson chicks and pick them up? Um, I mean, when he was doing that, that was building the story. But yeah. when he was just driving around, uh, less so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and there seemed to be, like, a real overuse of archival audio um, to stand in for the absence of story, um, which I found less than compelling. And I was like, okay, so we've got a radio playing in the background of, like, every scene, or the TV is on in every house, or there's, where there's, in situations where those things aren't present, there's a song that's being played all the time. Yeah. And I was like, just be a little bit more subtle. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, see, I think I think that is part of what this film is all about, and that you know we anyone who knows anything about Quentin Tarantino know that he he's one of those directors who really loves Hollywood, you know, loves film um, as a medium, very like Martin Scorsese and those sorts. So he's he's very much a, a fan of film, and a lot of people have interpreted this film as being like a love letter to old Hollywood. Perhaps, but I felt like, and this is where I started doing my research, because then I was like, this once upon a time in Hollywood, let's just think about the title for a minute, because I was like, my first take was, well, it's failed as a fairy tale, because you've really only got two models for fairy tales. Right. You've got Disney's version of fairy tales, (laughs) where things are morally unambiguous, and the bad guy, you know, gets his comeuppance, and so forth and so on. Or you have Grimm Brothers, where... Once Upon a Time leads you down dark paths, but there's a moral lesson. I was like, well, the film didn't really deliver on either of those two things. And I was like, what am I missing here? And and it was that point that I realized what I was missing was Sergio Leone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, but it took a film aficionado that I knew to raise this for me. This is how little I know about film, <laughs> dear listeners. I am the everyman in this episode. Because I was like, what, Sergio Leone? What do you mean? And... My friend was like, look, you're going to have to look into Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So it turns out that I didn't even know who created the Spaghetti Western. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no wonder I'm bored in this film. I don't even know what's going on. But to be honest, going into it, not knowing anything, Mm. it didn't stand up as a story for me. Yeah, And And I feel like that was a problem. Well, I mean, and this is the thing. How many, I mean... I, don't, I, I couldn't honestly tell you, like, how many people are going to have the context. Like, how many people have my combination of love of old Hollywood and interest in true crime? 
<laughs> Look, I feel like there's got to be a few, but I think you're there's got to be a few. No, 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 there's got to be a few. But then this is what I mean. Like, not everybody has that. So you're in the Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Not everybody has that. So to me, because I guess 1969 has really been sort of dominating my thoughts a lot lately, and I think it's I think it is such an interesting year to be focusing on because. It is a year of such turbulence, um, and it, and obviously being the end of the sixties, there is a ten, yeah, there is a, a temptation to look at it and be like, the Manson murders brought about the death of the spirit of the sixties. You know, Ooh, a lot. Big yeah, ball. yeah. Well, you know, you say what you will, but honestly, the Manson murders are seen as being like exposing, the, like the real cracks in this in this hippie counterculture yeah. sort of lifestyle because you've got these people who've been following Manson around thinking he is some sort of, you know, guru, guru or, or something like savior. that. Exactly, exactly. Um, living this this communal hippie sort of lifestyle, and yet if you look inside the reality of that lifestyle, it's not about equality and free love. These women have been brainwashed and beaten into being sex slaves of Charles Manson. Like any, you know, men who came and ha- you know met Manson or hung out at the ranch whatever he would order them to perform sexual acts i mean famously Manson briefly was very friendly with one of the beach boys members Dennis Wilson the drummer um and the way that he got in with Dennis Wilson was partly through the Manson girls like Dennis Wilson you know hooked up with some Manson girls and they were fun to party with and they you know gave him all this sex and so the Manson family sort of moved in with him for a while like throwing wild parties drugs sex rock and roll until eventually Wilson wised up and realized they were costing him a goddamn fortune <laughs> and you know it was getting old and all of that kind of stuff but what the sex gets old after a while <laughs> but yeah this is like a crucial part of like the Manson you know the way that he operated um, and he was doing this because he, he actually believed that he was going to have a, like a really successful music career. And it's when that, that dream falls apart that Manson starts to take a, a darker turn. One of the people that had lived at um, this Yellow Drive residence was Terry Melcher, who Manson had met through Dennis Wilson. Uh, and Melcher was a record producer, son of Doris Day, very well established, sort of Old Hollywood is in, he had his mother's connections, but new Hollywood in that he had more progressive attitudes and that kind of stuff. And Melcher did briefly, you know, give Manson some shots and, like, he actually recorded music and all of that kind of stuff, but he's, it never really went anywhere. Mm. It's been suggested that Manson ordered his followers to go to that particular house to kill Melcher in, like, some sort of revenge killing. And Melcher was living there with his then-girlfriend, Candace Bergen. But they'd moved out and Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate had been living there. And this is one of the things that you know, if you were if you were interested in the Manson murders, you would pick up this reference. One of the only scenes with Manson that's left in the film is when Manson shows up and asks if he can speak to. Uh, I think he actually specifically asks for Terry, uh, and they tell you know they tell him no, 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 it's they're not living here anymore. So Tarantino is sort of blowing apart that idea that it was a revenge killing that they knew full well that Terry Melcher wasn't living there anymore, uh, and that it was. Yeah, it was it was revenge under another guise or it was murder under another guise well i mean one of the things that charles manson was was very racist you know and, and this is what i find interesting about this this era you know by 1969 you've got the repercussions of martin luther king's assassination in the previous year 1969 was the year of the arrest of his assassin james earl ray um you've also got the black panthers um 
I guess, hitting the headlines more in the sense that the FBI declared them to be a communist enterprise and an enemy of the state. There were state-sanctioned murders of Black Panther members by police in this year. So things are, are ramping up on the civil rights front. And, and then you've got someone like Charles Manson who believes that the Beatles, when they released the White Album, were sending out a call that like, like a race war was going to happen. And when it doesn't happen in 1968, when the White Album was released, he decides he himself is going to unleash it in 1969. And that's why he calls his, you know, his race war ideas sort of in Helter Skelter, like after the song from the White Album. Um, and they write Helter Skelter, or actually they, they write Helter Skelter because they, <laughs> they can't it. spell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they wrote that uh, when they committed the La Bianca murders the night after the Tate murders. Mm. Um, and, and it's, yeah, I, I guess it just, for me, the, the Manson murders are really interesting in that they tap into all these various things that are going on in terms of the counterculture, the hippie movement, exposing some of the flaws in the hippie movement um, and and I suppose it may be exposing that this isn't going to be the revolution that people maybe thought it was going to be, like where it's going to be long-lasting and it's going to lead to peace and happiness and love and all this kind of stuff. It's not going to do that. Um, and also the racial tensions that existed at the time. That's why I kind of always find Manson interesting in that way. Yeah. yeah, so I, I guess if I'm thinking about all of this kind of new information, because for me, I'm like, ooh, I'm just like, I'm going to my seat <laughs> listening, um, being like, ooh, absorb the details. Um, if I'm thinking about it in terms of like, what's what value would I place on like counterfactual history? Mm. I feel like it has maybe a dual function potentially. Mm. One is to misguide people. Yeah. Um, deliberately so, but whether people realize it, that's another matter entirely. Mm. Or to drive curiosity about the history itself yeah, and thus drive people to do more research into it and to think about it. Yes. Um, I'm inclined as a, as a historian to always be curious. Um, <laughs> so I'm always interested in reading up about these things afterwards. Yeah. Um, and learning more. I've learned more in the last two days about spaghetti westerns than... <laughs> Than I could ever have known before. Um, <laughs> what time well spent? <laughs> it was time well spent. The things I learned. Um, it was great. Uh, and then I think about the way in which this sort of becomes a distortion. And, and then I wonder about the motives of people who attempt this deliberate fabrication on history. Well, that's exactly it. Because I, I really liked the film because... As I say, I've been thinking so much about 1969 um, lately, and I love old Hollywood too. So I appreciated a lot of the stuff that Tarantino had going on. And again, 1969 for the film industry is a really interesting period because by the late 1960s, the old studio system that had been in place for, you know, like half a century is fracturing. You know, you've got these new... Uh, new directors coming in, new scriptwriters, new actors who don't play by the old rules, who want to make films that are, you know, challenging and different, like, you know, Dennis Hopper and Easy Rider uh, and, you know, Midnight Cowboy. Like, this is the era of those sorts of films, which never would have been allowed under the old studio system because of the censorship rules. You know, 1967, you've got The Graduate coming out. You know, you've got all these really provocative films that are shattering the kind of films that Hollywood have made only five years before. Um, so I think it is a really interesting turning point for Hollywood itself. So I like all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I therefore found it really interesting 
when Tarantino decided not to have Sharon Tate murdered because the murders taking part in the area of Hollywood they did, you know, in Hollywood itself against someone like Sharon Tate, you know, who's married to prominent director Roman Polanski and herself was becoming a, you know, rising acting talent. It kind of shattered Hollywood's vision of itself, I think, at that time. And and it really did have an effect on people. People became quite paranoid about, you know, what had happened. Um, and so, and, I, and I've read other, I've read articles which have suggested as well, was Tarantino trying to imagine like what Hollywood would have been like if it hadn't lost its innocence or lost its, you know, its vision of itself, um, you know, all that, that sort of bubble it was, it was living in when Sharon Tate was so brutally murdered. Because of course, part of the brutality of, of the Sharon Tate murder, why everyone focuses on her, it's not just because she was beautiful and young and an actress, because she was about to give birth. You know, she was weeks away from giving birth um, to her first child. Uh, and she begged for the life of her baby. And the Manson family, you know, paid no heed to that. And, you know, brutal, brutal murder of her and her child. So it is a really shocking crime. And I, even though I loved the movie, I didn't actually really know how I felt about that not happening. You know, like, it... Yeah, <laughs> I think... I think this gets to one of the one of the points of criticism that I have about this film, which mm. is Tarantino is so obsessed with his own navel gazing and his <laughs> own sense of nostalgia that he can't help but interfere. And he's made a film which ticks all of the boxes, which means that film students will have to study it. <laughs> you know? Um, it, it does so many things for so many different genres. Yeah. Um, that people will be forced to study it. And I think it's a shame because I don't think it's that good a film. I must admit, I really, I actually really enjoyed it. As I say, for the, for the Hollywood Oh part. my God, I, I was really bored. Did. I felt it was like at least half an hour too long. Yeah, see, look, I know, I know this is a, co- I know this has been have. a common criticism, but I, I just really enjoyed it. And look, I know, I felt kind of guilty enjoying it because I've read a lot of reviews saying, that, you know, this kind of nostalgia film is not useful because it's saying, hey, weren't the old days really great when what they really, what was really happening is saying, hey, weren't the old days great if you were white and a man? Yeah. I mean, this is this is a, a film about two men, one of who is a murderer or at least is positioned as such. And then, and then that's sort of brushed over so he can be the complicated hero. Mm. I'm sorry, I'm not that interested in that kind of story. Um, then you've got one female character who's close to being a potential lead, but she's given nothing to do in the story except wander around and watch a film about herself and maybe <laughs> go to the bookstore once and then not adhere to the narrative chronology of the actual history. And it's like, I don't want to see her being murdered. Definitely not. The fact that that murder happened is horrific. Yeah. Are you going to not do any narrative justice to this at all? Okay. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I, I'm kind yeah. of offended. Um, you know, like, like there's literally nothing. There was no need to have Sharon Tate in that film. She didn't need to be there at all. It was just a story about two guys who live next door and happened to imaginatively kill some murderers. Well, see, this is the thing. I think she did need to be in there in terms of, I think Tarantino wanted to do another counterfactual history or, you know, revisionist history. I think that's why what he wanted to do. And therefore she needed to be there in order for him to you know, turn it on its head. Like, yeah, well, she, so she yeah. functions as a as a visual device to provide the tension that holds this film together, which otherwise would not have any tension, and thus otherwise doesn't need to be held together, and thus doesn't need to be 
made. It's like it's like the ultimate objectification of a woman in narrative. Hmm. Interesting. Because this is really about the homoerotic relationship between the two guys. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Give it to me. Give it to me. So <laughs> yeah, this is this is where studying Sergio Leone has helped me a lot. Okay. Because yep. boy, the homoeroticism <laughs> in spaghetti western. Um. So the way that this builds as a narrative where Rick finds ways to keep Cliff around. Yeah. And Cliff doesn't realize why. He's being kept around. Okay. That that it to me that is the actual narrative of this film, one that is not properly explored and even kind of glossed over. But this is about a man loving another man and not knowing how uh, look, to express it. I, I definitely agree. Like the the central relationship of this film is between the two fictional characters <laughs> who who are you know who monopolize our attention. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't really get the the homoerotic side of it i felt like it was more you know you know because cliff never says yes to a girl you he actually murders women um we get some nice flashback scenes to where we get a hint that yeah he probably you know he was holding the harpoon what are the chances um seems like she never came back like the wife never came back from that fishing trip that i admit i think is i i, I actually didn't know that was the one thing where i was like i really don't feel like that needed to be in there because it's not resolved. Like you don't, you don't know what happened, and I, and I, I feel like there's another. You could come up with a, a number of other excuses as to why he's disliked. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like this yeah. is a bit of a stand-in for Quentin Tarantino himself. Right, okay. and this is part of the reason why I had an embargo on Tarantino <laughs> films in the first place. Until I fall asleep. <laughs> so now we're getting into the juicy stuff because yeah. isn't it interesting that Tarantino is on record mm-hmm. in 2003, yeah, saying the things that he says about Polanski. Um, and then retracting those statements many years later and being like, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I'm like, okay. And then to make a film which has Polanski just in the background, but where men are not to blame for the things that happen. Mm. It's like, to me, all of this ties into a really complicated narrative of self-exculpation. Well, see, it is, this is, this is another reason why I find this incident interesting because it obviously changes i feel like it changes the course of roman polanski's yeah does tarantino make it all right for polanski by having sharon tate not die wait why why would that make it all right because then chances are he wouldn't have been in a situation where he raped a 13 year old yeah yeah. well maybe the marriage would have worked out maybe he would have had a kid well, this is what I mean. Hey, like, Tarantino wouldn't have had to say those things provocatively <laughs> as he did. Look, regard. I mean, this is the thing. Regardless of what happens later, I do think that this would be, in reality, obviously, I can't. Even, I can't even imagine someone I, I cared about being like that. Would be a legitimately horrifying thing. And I, I again, I picked up on the, the reference to Sharon Tate buying that book because that becomes one of the films that Polanski makes after her, you know, after her death and and after his. I think it was actually after the whole Rachel thing, like the whole Tessa the D'Urbervilles story. So I, th- I found it was interesting that he inserted that, you know, beforehand. Mm. You know, anyway, so I did find all of that kind of thing interesting. Um, and yeah, I. This is the thing I. I do feel like it, it is sort of reaching for a time when 
as I say, when that innocence wasn't destroyed, you know, when that, when that's, yeah, when, when things weren't, didn't take this really dark turn that they do for a lot of the people involved, like Polanski and, and Hollywood in general. I mean, people were super paranoid about what had happened afterwards. Like Steve McQueen, who was a big star and therefore is in the background of this film, um, he took a gun to the funeral of Jay Sebring, who was one of the people murdered alongside Sharon Tate. Um, and, and, and to be honest, this is a th- this is the thing I sort of wondered about. I say I did really like the film, and I I could appreciate the counterfactual element to it. But again, I feel like it, it does change the narrative so many people. Like Jay Sebring, as was hinted at in the film, everyone sort of sort of knows that he was still in love with Sharon Tate. Um, and they had the, they had maintained this very close friendship, um, even into her marriage and during her pregnancy and all that sort of thing. And he died trying to protect her that night. And it's, you know, taking away those elements from people, it's, you know, it, it, I kind of wonder, like, ah, how do we... It's the know. sort of thing that if it happened with ancient source material, yeah. I'd be like, well, they're 50 years away from it. It's very hard to know what happened. Sure, yeah. Um maybe this is the best that they could do yeah but tarantino goes into this knowing that he wants to produce a fallacy upon history yes and, see, and so, i don't have a lot of respect for that as a historian well, well this is the thing i actually quite enjoy counterfactual history you know, as a rule like I, I kind of enjoy thinking about well what if and i do appreciate the people that say that well counterfactual history um can kind of expand your mind in new directions because by thinking about, well, what if this happened instead of this, it can highlight new elements of what actually did happen, you know, like as in what are all the causal factors in this event or, you know, thinking about the repercussions and all of that kind of stuff. I, I appreciate how it can highlight, you know, those elements. Um, and so I have, I, I didn't, I enjoyed Inglorious Bastards and, and I say I did, I did actually enjoy this film, but Afterwards, I did just sort of think, well, in this particular instance, you know, what what is this what if highlighting, and is it, yeah, is it worth, uh, is it doing a disservice to the memory of the people that were in fact murdered, um, in the Tate murders, which is the, the murder at you know Sharon Tate's residence, and then the you know, the La Bianca murders aren't even touched on obviously because they happened the night after um so yeah it, it did kind of leave me thinking a bit about how i felt about this particular one. and it's weird that i actually had more of a reaction to that than i did to inglorious bastards where which technically has much wider implications for world politics with like hitler being assassinated yeah sure but i think the thing is that the nar- that narrative of hitler is also much more well known yes you know there are there are fewer fewer ifs really um i mean it's a bit of a crackpot theory to to suggest that somehow he survived the war, although some people do. Yeah. Um, but in a case like this, it's like, I mean, the, the consequences for Hollywood yeah. um, seem to be pretty dire. And the consequences for Los Angeles as a city, because mm. uh, it seems that a lot of people are reading this movie as a bit of a love letter to old Los Angeles yes. before it had before before this it was a different place yeah and after this this is a defining moment in its identity yeah um and it changes everything about how people understand themselves in that city mm. um i'm not really sure where i'm going with that point but well i mean <laughs> I, I, I think this is the interesting thing about the manson murders um 
it's it, it obviously can't, coming in 1969 there is this temptation to read it as like you know a full stop on the on the whole 60s you know um as i said before but it, i say it's also got these wider implications for you know trying to hold manson responsible for murders where he wasn't actually one of the people murdering you know so it has it has interesting implications i suppose for just thinking about criminal responsibility and all of that kind of stuff um and also what he was trying to do as i say like with the, with the racial tensions i mean the police had no idea that he it was it was so random that's the thing it, i mean it, it wasn't it wasn't like they had been to the house before they knew the people that used to live there so in a way it's not random but I do believe that they, they knew that Terry Melcher wasn't living there anymore. As the movie highlighted quite well, he had not been living there for quite some time by the time the Manson murders come about. Mm. Um, and so the randomness of it and the brutality of it, the senselessness of it. And then and then it's the same with the La Bianca murders. The people that they choose to murder in that instance, again, it just seems to be so so random. And that in itself, I think, is the horror, it's like really horrifying to people, you know, that that's the scary part. Yeah, Even though most people, people who are murdered are murdered by people they know. We know that. But people are still more scared of being murdered by someone they don't know. Um, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's the yeah, horror yeah. of it. Yeah. It's the things that you can't predict. Yeah. Um, there's no way to be sure that you're not going to be murdered if any random person could murder you. Yeah, because one of the things that they did um, after they... Sharon Tate was the last one to die on that particular night. Um, so they, they'd murdered everybody else. And... Uh, and Sharon Tate begged for the life of her baby and said she was you know, brutally hacked apart by these people. They then used her blood to write on the wall, pig. So the police had, they were very thrown off the scent when they first came to the scene, thinking it was something to do with like, you know, drugs or, you know, like something, something totally different to what it was. Um, and same with the La Bianca murders, like Helter Skelter <laughs> didn't really give them a lot to work on because, you know, Charles Manson's philosophy wasn't widely known obviously in police circles it's the fact that they actually start interrogating members of the manson families on car theft charges and because of this um one of the members of the manson family starts shooting her mouth off while she's in jail and that puts them on the trail it's it's it was just so even even tracking them down and associating them with this particular crime is, is a bit of a random... Well, this is what I mean. If it hadn't been for one of the Manson family who gets interrogated and put in jail for a little while over, like, these car theft charges, like, I don't know if they would have tracked them down as quickly as they did. Um, and Manson left... Uh, well, Manson actually did go to the LaBianca household the night of the LaBianca murders, but he left before the murders actually happened. Um, he seems to have taken part in a murder of uh, one of the people that worked on the um, at the ranch where they were living. He was a bit suspicious that um, one of the ranch hands who did not like Manson and the, and the family living there, he thought that he tipped the, the police off. And so he and a couple of the guys that were a part of the Manson family take him out for a drive and murder him. That's like seems to be one of the only murders that Manson actually involved in. But that guy's body wasn't found for a really long time. Um, so yeah, it's just it, it's just an interesting. So thing. many details. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, 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 I find it very interesting. <laughs> yeah, the whole yeah. idea of Criminal responsibility and the fact that you know Charles Manson was you know convicted and he, he died in jail only two years ago, uh, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> to think about. 
Um, but yeah, it, it raises so many questions, this particular crime uh, about this era and then what follows into the 1970s. Um, so I guess that's why I kind of liked the, kind of liked the sort of meandering feeling to the, to the film because it felt like it kind of gave you the opportunity to sort of relax, feel part of the world. Relax into the world. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and as I, I did, I did like the, the Hollywood aspects to it, like the new type of films that were being made. Um, you know, <laughs> and that Rick Dalton kind of struggles to understand um, because he's very much like of the previous generation. Yeah, and I suppose, like, I can't speak much to the history because I don't know that much about it, mm. but I did, I felt like everybody in this film could definitely act, but then there wasn't that much story for them to do much with. Mm. So, and I suppose I just treated it from like a raw, like, sort of film studies perspective. Is this contributing to the narrative? Is this building character or building plot? Mm. Uh, it's not. I don't. I don't know why we're here. <laughs> um, you know, like there's a whole bunch of sort of small scenes where you get to sort of like see somebody who was famous at the time doing yeah. something, and yeah. I was like, but why? Uh, well, the Bruce Lee cameo I think was put in there again deliberately because. Um, Polanski suspected that Bruce Lee was the murderer for a little while because I think Bruce Lee had like lost some glasses and there were some like random glasses found at the crime scene and um, and he had worked with Sharon Tate as they showed in What's Come Time in Hollywood on her um, yeah, on her fighting work technique. yeah exactly yeah um, so for a very brief window of time Bruce Lee was actually a suspect in uh, well at least in Polanski's mind. Um, so I, I feel like maybe, again, Tarantino was aware of that and therefore put that in for people who would sort of pick up on the, you know, the building picture <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. uh, of, what, of what's going on in the, in the background. Yeah, I mean, I found the whole thing very curious. Um, mm. Yeah, I was kind of just waiting for something to happen, <laughs> um, which was a shame because I... I a lot of it was beautifully shot. Yes. Um, and I feel like I have a really particular sort of take on sound, which, and I I don't deal very well in my own life with a lot of background noise. Right. And this has been true my whole life. So if I'm trying to do something and there's like a television in the background, that really quite frustrates me. Um, and this film was just laden with sound that explains and like, so much because i'm the opposite so like diegetic sound yeah. everywhere and i was like i i'm like just just turn it off like i mean nobody needs to listen to the ads of 1968 and 1969 you know like just you know yeah. like now, have see, some atmosphere or something that might explain our different reactions in that to that kind of stuff because yeah. i am the kind of person where if i don't have the television on in the background i will probably fall asleep i was if i'm not doing if I'm doing something, I'm probably listening to a podcast, like very rarely is my world silent. (laughs) Yeah, where I'm really striving for silence a lot of the time, that's my ideal working scenario. Yeah. Um, So I found it like a really, like, almost like for me an oral overload. Yeah. um, In terms of its world building. Mm. Um, Whereas I appreciated a lot of the sort of the visual aspects of it. Yeah. and, And I could see that a lot of like the acting seemed to me to be all perfectly fine yeah but i was very confused about why this was being told to me at all yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i well, had I a lot of that going even on. though this was a fictional element and therefore not really part of our discussion i did think leonard DiCaprio was brilliant in the role of rick dalton like 
I, I really enjoy watching him act. And, and even though Margot Robbie, I, I agree, wasn't given a lot to do because she was she was obviously the point of tension. Um, for who she was meant to be portraying, again, I kind of I kind of get the sense of, of what Tarantino was maybe going for there because Sharon Tate was known to be, you know, stunningly beautiful, um, but also I think quite insecure in a lot of ways. So. I think the the scene of her watching her own film actually kind of resonated with me because that's the kind of sense of Sharon Tate that I get. You know, someone who was on the rise, hadn't quite made it yet, still was fairly, you know, a bit unsure of herself and a bit insecure still. Wanted to check that her work was going down correctly with the audience. Well, yeah, it did kind of tarry up with what I understood of Sharon Tate at that point in her life. Um, and, and I think it kind of tried to show that, like, to me, I found it kind of sweet in a way that she, you know, that, that she, the way that she was watching herself and, and that kind of thing, I just, I actually kind of found it charming, I suppose. Mm. Um, I, I understand that it could also be seen as narcissistic, but I can understand that if you're just making it big, like, it would be exciting to see your name and lights and yourself on the screen. And I, I think Sharon Tate was a bit like that at that point in her career because she hadn't quite made it to the very top, but she was on her way there. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't really read those things one way or the other. I just thought there wasn't a lot of story happening. I was like, okay, a character is going to the, to the cinema, and I'm like, to watch a film, okay, um, but they're in it, okay. <laughs> well, see, that's what I mean. For me, that was building her character in the sense of, from what I know of her at that point in her life, that... And so that totally made sense to me. Yeah. yeah. To me, this felt like, because um, I started looking into this, because I was like, why wasn't this, why wasn't half an hour of the footage cut? Sure. Um, as as would have been to make a tight film. Yeah. Um, and this led me into a couple of things. One is that this is the first film that Tarantino has done where he's not with the Weinstein Company in any way. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that he really lobbied for, apparently, um, when putting this film with Sony Pictures, was that he would have the final edit. Right. He would get that final cut. Um, so maybe this is something that he hasn't had as much control over as he wanted previously. Mm. But then the other factor at play is that his long-standing editor that he's worked with on most of his films mm. passed away not, like, sort of, like, maybe four or five years ago, perhaps? So, okay. like... The last film that he's released prior to this one also had a new editor. Right. Um, yeah. And he's been working with this new editor. So this is the second film that he's done with this new editor. So perhaps not quite in sync. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, well, this combination of like not quite the same editing, um, having control of the final cut, it feels like Tarantino's just sort of let himself go. Well, see, the other, the other question I suppose I had when I was thinking about this, as I say, the nature of this film being like a counterfactual history. I was wondering, is it like Django and Inglourious Bastards? Is this actually a chance for us to get revenge on the people that we wish we had revenge on? You know, like making slave owners pay, making Hitler and the Nazis pay, seeing the Manson murderers brutally murdered themselves, um, and and the way that they, um, the way that he turned that line, like that that line that Tex says when he bursts into Rick Dalton's house and he says, you know, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. That's apparently exactly what Tex said 
when he broke in and confronted the like one of the first victims, one of Sharon Tate's friends who was sleeping on the couch. That's what he said to him. So the way they made that like a comedic line, I felt like, is this a way of bringing these people down that we wish, you know, like to, to the level that we wish to see them? So I feel like yeah. this is where the film attempted at catharsis. And, yes. And for me, missed. And maybe for other people, it hit the target. Sure. Yeah. Um, because... I was like, well, catharsis is like this release of a really strong, potentially quite negative emotion. Yeah. And for some people, I guess a gory scene where revenge is served yeah. would be a moment for catharsis. Yeah. For me, it wasn't because I can't watch that stuff. I mean, I just sit there with my eyes closed waiting for those scenes to be over because right. I cannot deal with that level of gore. Yeah. Um, and it also left me... Um, in my in my personal review of this film, I was like, it seems to me that Tarantino can't do a story unless it also has gore. Like he relies upon it as a narrative device. Yeah, saving it right to the end, as in this kind of film. Well, I was surprised that it was uh, that was all it was in. You know? Well, yeah, I, yeah. I think you know he's trying to stretch out what he knows to be the audience's expectation and that tension for yeah, them yeah. of seeing that kind of thing on screen, drawing it out as long as possible. Sure. But everything up until then didn't feel to me like it had any narrative drive to it. So I was like, does he actually require gore in order to tell a story? Because I think that might be a narrative failing as well. Well, see, this is the thing. I, I'm not, like, a huge fan of, like, horror films or, you know, that kind of thing in general. Um, but with the scene, the final scenes of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I actually could watch those because they're, they're like, cartoonish violence to me. You know, it's it doesn't seem very real because it's so over the top gory um so i can watch these sorts of films one of the other interesting suggestions that i read in a film review um of this though was that the ending is actually a drug trip so um you know how cliff smokes the acid cigarette um just before the final scenes unfold one of the suggestions is that what we're actually seeing at the end is because tarantino's left this very much out in the open um, what we're actually seeing is Cliff's drug trip imagination of what happened and that actually what is going on while he's having this trip is to take murders. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, that seems perhaps more historically plausible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Some guy was tripping on acid while the tape murders were taking place? You're <laughs> telling somebody was smoking acid in the late 60s? <laughs> Well, I could I well believe it. Well, I suppose that might be a good place to, to wrap up. I very much enjoyed talking historical films with you, Dr. G, and I hope to do it again. It has future. been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>